okay, Christmas is around the corner, right? It's like, it's, it's literally next week, okay? Like next week, come tomorrow. And, we'll, and it's, it's going to be a time where we come around and we celebrate with family and we celebrate with our friends. And many of us are probably winding up work this week. What a wonderful week it is in the lead up to Christmas. Now, there's often Christmas deadlines. There's often like, when I was a carpenter, like everyone wanted, and I, I did windows and doors, everyone wanted their house to be locked up by Christmas so they could get in, right? And I was like, all the deadlines are on Christmas. But I tell you what, we're in the factory, and I'm sure you're the same at work. It's like, we're kind of like, who cares? It's the last week, it's Christmas. Like, it's just this kind of like, you know, everyone's like, oh, holidays are coming up. Everyone's a little bit pumped. Everyone's a little bit happy. Christmas tunes playing. Like, um, Emma was saying that, uh, that Emma works for the government, the budget's cut slightly, so then people had to pay for their own Christmas decorations to put up in the office, and people actually pay money to do that. I don't understand that, but that's fair. Um, and, and people are just like in this good mood, right? And inevitably with Christmas, it's the end of the year, and we begin to look forward to the new year, what the new year has to bring. And I preached a uh, pyre a few weeks ago about how like often at the end of the year, we're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to next year because this year has been horrific, right? But, um, but, but often we look forward to next year expectantly. And I think, but one thing we also do uh, at come Christmas, and maybe it's just me, but um, we, we, as we look forward, we tend to reflect and look back on the year that was, on what's happened this year, on how that this year has shaped us in order to what maybe next year will look like. Maybe we have ambitions that we want to do next year. Maybe maybe some setbacks happen this year, or maybe some things great happen this year for you. And we, we look back and we reflect on the year, and I think about it is that, um, that January is so long ago. That, like this year, so much has happened this year, and as we look back and reflect, as we come towards one of the most important days in, uh, that celebrated uh, around the world and especially by the church, we begin to reflect. And this morning, I want to look forward to the Christmas event, but I also want to look back a little bit through, through Jesus' uh, Jesus's lineage, back all the way back to King David and, and the promise that David received that, that, um, that a king would come that would have a forever reign from, uh, from David's line. And, and, and as we know, that, that, um, that Jesus was that was that forever king. But first I want to look back to David and I just want to, want to look into the story of David with his son and then I want to look forward to Jesus. And, uh, and as I said, I'm speaking out of a prophetic word that I received um, uh, about this church and it was specifically to the leadership, but I also feel that a, l- a little bit of that I really want to share with the church this morning and, uh, and I hope that encourages you. But let's, uh, before we get into the word, let's just pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that as we just spend this next time together as a church family, Lord, that you'd really, um, Lord, that you'd unite us in your spirit, God. Lord, that you would just speak to us as individuals, Father God. Lord, whatever that comes out of my mouth this morning would be of you, Jesus. Lord, that it would be encouraging to people. Lord, that it would be challenging to people. God, that people would receive your word today, Lord, and that it would inspire them to do the work of the kingdom, Lord, that, it would, uh, that you would birth dreams in people's hearts today, Lord, that you would bring words of encouragement, prophetic words, Lord, that you would exalt us today, Lord, that you are worthy of everything, Lord, but we are so humbled that you, we are made worthy to sit in your presence by your son, Jesus. Lord, as Christmas comes up, God, I pray that you keep everyone safe, everyone that is on holidays now, everyone that will go on holidays, Lord, that you would keep us safe in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to be covering a little bit of scripture today. 
So if you've got your Bibles here um, this morning, if you can turn to me to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're mostly going to be hanging out in 2 Samuel today, um, so you can kind of keep that open. We'll be jumping a few chapters here and there. Um, but first of all, before we, we read it out, I'd like to uh, just give you a little bit of a background of the context uh, that we'll be reading today. So we know that Israel is a nation, um, but it's a nation that's divided. Um, and so in Judges, if we go back to Judges 19, we hear probably the most horrific story in the Bible of, um, of a rape that takes place um, by the tribe of uh, Benjamin um, uh, against this uh, man's concubine. And, um, and then we see that uh, the rest of the, the tribes, the 11 tribes, uh, exact revenge on um, Benjamin in Judges 20. And it is this bloody war and, and Benjamin is almost, the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely wiped out. And, uh, and then there's this split, right? Um, so, and then we see like Israel's first king is King uh, is King Saul, and he's actually from the tribe of Benjamin. And then we've also got David from the tribe of Benjamin. But then Saul gets jealous, and all these things happen. And Saul wants to kill David, and it's just this like back and forth of like division in the kingdom, I mean God's people, the kingdom of Israel, and it's like separated with Judah and Israel, and it's messy and it's gross and just like. It's just, it's just a mess, right? It's not God's plan for the people. Um, but he places David in there as king. Now, the people chose Saul. Uh, they wanted a king, and they said Saul was to be our king, but God chose David. And, uh, and David came, and, and, and the kingship was anointed on David from a young age, but then he had to go through like a lot of rubbish to actually get to the point where he was king. And that's where we're picking it up in chapter 5. Um, uh, we see that, um, that David actually is successful in uniting the tribes of Israel. So let's read from verse 1. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, We are our own flesh and blood. In the past when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, You will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Um, you will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, which is the capital of um, of Israel, King David made a, co- a covenant before the Lord with all the el- uh, elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began the reign, and he reigned for 40 years in total. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron, so Hebron is the capital of Judah, for seven years and six months, and then from Jerusalem he reigned over Israel and Judah for 33 years. So it goes on to say that David captures the city of Jerusalem and unites Israel as a kingdom, brings the, uh, the two parts together of Judah and Israel, unites it as one kingdom in, uh, and makes um, Jerusalem the capital. Okay, And, and we know it's uh, called the city of David and um, and then after David comes King Solomon. And then after King Solomon comes King uh, uh, Rehoboam. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. And under his rule, we see Israel's divided again. Okay, and, and literally still is. And I think, uh, and I could be wrong, but um, uh, Israel, what it is now is, is uh, really Judah. That They really kind of lost the borders because it was just exile and, and it was just a whole mess. And it was kind of like unity, division, unity, division, and it's going in and out. And it's just like this big mess. Okay, where am I? Yeah, so we see the people united and prospering and then we see the people divided and fighting. And then it just goes back and forth. And today's sermon I've, uh, I've entitled under um, Aesop's fable, one of his fables, uh, and it's called um, United We Stand, Divided We Fall. Granted, you've probably heard that before, right? So that's what I've called this morning's sermon. Um, and I want to look at why unity is so important to us as Christians. 
But before I do that, I want to look at division and how the enemy uses division as a tool to fracture the church. So I'm going to remain in the story of King David and I'll look at how division begins to separate a kingdom that David has united. So let's go back to Samuel, 2 Samuel, and I'm just going to sum up chapters 13 and 14 real quick. So we've got Absalom, which is David's son. He kills his half-brother Amon because Amon raped Absalom's sister Tamar. David mourned the death of Amon, and Absalom fled it, and he was away for two years. And then David finally brought Absalom back, but he refused to talk to him for a couple of years. And then if we pick it up in the last chapter, uh, the last verse of chapter 15, it says, Then at last David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. And there's this reuniting of king and son, and all, all is happily ever after from there. It's not really. Literally in the next verse, um, like Absalom begins his plot. Okay, So Absalom is finally reconciled with his father and then the king, and he begins his master plan, this plot, to take the throne for himself. He wants David's throne for himself. So how does he do that? Division. Let's pick it up in 16 verses 1 to 12. After this, Absalom bought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When people brought him a case uh, to the king for judgment, Absalom would, ask, um, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from, and they would tell him his tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have any time to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. Man, what a legend. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came to see the king for judgment, and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. After four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron, the former capital, to offer sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill a vow I made to him. For while your servant was at Geshur and in Aram, I promised a sacrifice to the Lord in Hebron if he would bring me back to Jerusalem. All right, David told him, go and fulfill your vow. So Absalom went, uh, Absalom went to Hebron, but while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you are to say, Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He took 200 men from Jerusalem with him as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he sent for Ahithod, yep, that guy, and uh, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo. Soon, many others also joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum. Okay, so I'm just going to unpack this passage of scripture real quick. To do that, I'm going to need some water, so please bear with me. So basically, the chapter goes on here to, um, to say that David, David catches wind of this. Absalom's like, they blow the trumpet and he's announced king. And David catches um, wind of this and he's like, let's bounce. Let's get out of here. He just runs, okay? Which is kind of weird because David's like this mighty warrior and he's God's chosen king. But um, he hears his son has begun this plot and, um, and David just gets out of there. 
Such is the power of division that with just 200 men that didn't even know what was going on, Absalom took the kingdom of united Israel that David had united together. And I want to take a couple of points out of this message to show you how the enemy can use division. So the first one, if you're taking notes, the first one I've got here today is division starts outside the gates of the city. You never hear, it's so interesting, you never hear that when someone wants to slander a leader or someone wants to talk poorly about their king or who is in charge of a certain area, they never do it like from the microphone. They never do it from like inside the, the city walls, so to speak. They do it, they, it's always something that's spoken about in the corridors. It's always something that's mentioned in the one-on-one meetings. Like it's, it's, it's something that like starts out of the city gates. And this is what Absalom did. He intercepted the people before they could get to David. So he came and he stood between the king and his people and he intercepted them. And this is the interesting thing about division is that it always starts in the darkness. Absalom sits outside the city gates. He intercepts the people before they get to the king. And you never hear about someone complaining about their leader. Like, okay, like I'll be real with you. I used to work in, in carpentry, as you know. I worked in a factory that was run by the exclusive brethren, a family of exclusive brethren. And I tell you what, it was a, it was a company divided because all the guys in the workshop weren't brethren and all the guys in the office were exclusive brethren and it was like us against them okay and everyone would whinge about the brethren they'd whinge about the the, our bosses essentially but they'd never do it in front of the boss right it would be like the boss would come out and they'll be lovely to the boss and they'll be nice to the boss and they'll talk to the boss and then as soon as he's turned his back that's when the that's when the division starts we're like oh my gosh they just don't know anything. They don't know what's going on. They're useless. And it's this division that starts when the leader's back is turned, when the boss's back is turned, when the king's back is turned. It starts outside the city gates. The second thing I, I took from this scripture is that division comes masqueraded as wisdom. Absalom laments that the kingdom doesn't have time for their problems, for the people's problems. He says to the people, if only I were the judge, I would give you what you deserve. Division has no respect for the people that God has placed in charge. David was the chosen king of God. Division says, I could do it better. I could be a better leader. I could do it better. I could give you, if only I were judge, if only me, if it only were I, if only, if only I were in the place of authority, I could do it better. I could do it better. I know better. They don't see the plight of the people. I see the plight of the people. I could do it better. I could do it. And it sounds like wisdom because Absalom did this so much that he stole the hearts of the people. They were like, of course, David won't give us justice. Only Absalom will give us justice because Absalom's the one that is telling us what we want to hear. Absalom never directly attacks David's character. He's never obvious why he's suddenly concerned about the people. This is a guy that has lived away for a couple of years. He's rocked up in Jerusalem. He's the new kid on the block, and he is stealing the hearts of the people through false wisdom. He claims that he has the wisdom to call the shots. If only I were in their position, I would know what to do. If I had their power... And he responds to the people with false compassion. And they try to bow to him, and he's, oh, don't bow to me. I'm not the king. 
we're on the same, he gives them a kiss, we're on the same level. I'm a man of the people. I don't sit up in the lofty throne. I don't sit in the palace. I'm, I'm outside the city gates. I'm, I'm down with the people. But it's all false. He's all like, hypothetically, if I were king, this is how it would look. And I believe that this is how the enemy uses division, is that he comes in and he, he, he uses it and it sounds like wisdom. It sounds like, yeah, Absalom knows what he's talking about. Yeah, hang on, David is in the palace. What's David doing for my plight? Why isn't David hearing my calls? Because Absalom's standing in between. He's divided the people from their leader. So this is how division disguises itself. It seeks to tear down whom God has anointed. It doesn't start out with a frontal assault. It sows the seed of division through the mantra, I know better, I understand. It slowly undermines through false wisdom. And the third way that this passage that God spoke to me through this passage was division always wants to return to the way things were. One interesting thing about division is it usually pops up when things begin to change, when things begin to move. When we start to move in a new direction, division rears its ugly head. Everyone seems fine when things are like they've always been, but as soon as things begin to move in a new direction or forward, division always tries to go backwards. Absalom went to Hebron to start the division. He went to the former capital. He said the way things were was better. Jerusalem was the new capital. It was the capital that David established, uniting the kingdom under Jerusalem as their capital. And Absalom said, no, things were better the way they were before. I'm going back to Hebron. Hey, guys, remember how good it was before? Remember how God was moving before? This new direction we're going in, this isn't of God. Let's go back to how things were. It becomes uncomfortable with change. Absalom wanted the former things. He went back to the former capital. Division always says things were better the way before. Let's go back to how it was. It says that, they're heading in the wrong direction. Man, people want to be in the boat, right? People want to be in the boat of Christianity. But when the boat starts to rock, do you remember the disciples when they're like freaking out and Jesus is just asleep? He's just chilling in the boat. And the disciples want to be in the boat with Jesus. But as soon as the storm came, they all started losing their minds. And I think that this is the way that division works, is that it goes, it's, it's moving forward. Going to something new is uncomfortable, right? You know, um, when, when God gave, um, gave the promise that uh, the Israelites would enter the promised land, when they went and saw it, and they looked at it, and they said, how are we going to take this land? It's full of giants. Like, and, and do you remember the Israelites in the desert when, it, when, they, were, when they had the exodus and they got away from, uh, from uh, Egypt? And they were like in the desert, they're finally a free people, and God's giving them the promised land. And then they're suddenly they're like, it was better when we were slaves. Oh my God, we're going to die in the desert alone. It was better. Let's go back to the way things were. And sometimes it's comfortable going back because the new things, the new directions, the way we're moving in is, can be uncomfortable because it's unknown. But that's where we've got to have the faith of God. We've got to have people that have faith like Caleb and says, no, we can take this land. Because God has promised it to us. But then there's always going to be someone in the crowd that says, man, 
Look at the leadership. They don't know what they're doing. Guys, that is, that's like, that's part of Jesus' leadership, is that it's 100% trusted in God, is that Jesus' leadership is completely flipped on its head to the way that we see. And I think that the enemy uses division to get in and it creates doubt and it says the way we're heading in can't be the right way because it's uncomfortable. Being in the boat is uncomfortable, especially when the boat starts to rock. And if the boat started to rock when Jesus was in the boat, then I think we have a pretty good idea that we can expect it to rock as we move forward into the things that Jesus has for us. When there is division, there's two visions, right? That's, that's really what division is. The vision that God has given us, or there's the vision of the people's lack of faith. And there's the vision that says, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to Hebron. We don't want to die in, in, the, in, the new, uh, in the desert. We'd rather have died in Egypt where we had houses when we were like, we had some days of comfortable, like trusting in God, walking in faith is so uncomfortable. It's incredibly uncomfortable. I've done it for this last year. It's incredibly uncomfortable, but it's incredibly rewarding. And it's also like incredibly, it's insane. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine, we're catching up for coffee yesterday. And I'm telling him about all the things that are going on in my life. And I'm like, I've just got this peace because God's come through for me before. And that he promises that he'll come through again. And I'm not worried about it. And he's like, that's insane. And I was like, I know, right? It's incredibly uncomfortable, but it's also exciting when the is rocking now. I don't start freaking out with the disciples. I'm like, guys, do something. But when we move comfortable, it's scary with the unknown, but God is with us. God goes before us. And I just want to encourage you, church, when there's two visions, I want to go with the one that Jesus has called us to. I don't want to go with man's vision. I don't want to go with man's wisdom or his false wisdom or whatever it is. I want to follow Jesus' vision for my life. I want to follow Jesus' vision for this church. I want to stand behind leaders like Tyler that seek out diligently the vision of God for this church, for this people. I want to follow people like that, leaders with faith. And this brings us to Christmas. It doesn't really. But, but it does because Jesus came at Christmas. So now we're looking forward, right? So we're looking back. We looked how the enemy used division in, uh, in Israel with, uh, with, <clears throat> with David and his son. And he used division there. And he, he began to tear it apart. And then it was brought back together. And it's just, but it just never was. Israel has never been united. God's people has never been united the, like it was. Like it's, it's been this tussle. But now I want to look forward to why unity is important. Why as a church we need to be in unity together. And, and, and the people cry out. I love it in Isaiah when the prophet, prophet says, um, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And God does it. God tears open the heavens in a less dramatic way than we thought. And he, he brings a baby into this world. And it's a tearing of the heavens in a different way than we would probably have imagined if we were back then. Because this baby is born in a manger, in a stables, 
completely powerless, completely humbled as a man, God comes to earth to unite his church. Suddenly we have Emmanuel, God with us, and a Christ to unite his bride, to unite a body of believers, the church. So now I want to take three points of how we're called to unity. My first is, in Christ, we are one body. Corinthians paints this beautiful image of how the church operates in unity. It's a verse that's read a lot in church, but it, I just, I love it because it is, it is so true. It just makes practical sense. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up the whole body. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 12. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some of us are Gentiles, some of us are slaves, and some of us are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. We all share the same spirit. So God has put the body together, this is 20, verse 24, God has put the body together such that extra honor and care is given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes a harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. It's this beautiful image, this beautiful picture of how Jesus, how God intends, how Jesus intends his bride to be. How crazy is it that, and going back to the, um, to the interpretation that, that God gave me of Mike's tongues, how crazy is it that we're, we're unworthy as a people, we're, like, we're so messed up. I mean, me on my own is, is messed up enough, but us together, us united in our messiness is, is one big mess. There's a lot of mess, okay? And, but Jesus came and he made us worthy and to the point where he called us our, his bride, okay? Like, what a beautiful image. I mean, I just got married. I didn't feel like I was worthy to be, um, to be the groom uh, when I had such a beautiful bride. Like, but this is the world's reverse. We're an ugly bride. <laughs> we are an ugly bride. But Jesus sees through our ugliness, calls out the beauty prophetically that is in us, is within the church, and says, I will choose the church to be my bride. It's, man, it's just, it blows my mind that God would use us and, and love us so much that he would call us his bride, that he would use that beautiful imagery to speak about his church and about how he loves us. I love, the, the best thing I love about church is that Often, and maybe this is just me, and I'll repent, but often, church is full of a bunch of people that you wouldn't hang out with if you had the choice. <laughs> uh, I said I'd repent. But like, honestly, it is like, like it is, you're thrust into this environment where you literally could be in a room of like heaps of people that you have nothing in common with. That you wouldn't choose to hang out. You've got nothing. You've got no hobbies. You've got, like, there's literally nothing in common. But there is one thing in common, and it's the spirit that unites us as one. We're all united in the one spirit. And I can talk to someone that 
I would never talk to before about the things of God and we can be have a great conversation and be so united, but I could be so like far matched from this person in a friendship sense that I would have never have talked to each other if it wasn't how Christ unites us. It says that there's no longer Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, male or female. It's beautiful that we can be united and we can we can unite in the things of Christ with a bunch of people that we potentially may have never hung out with if it wasn't for the church. No matter their background, race, history, gender, we can come together united by one spirit. Often churches full of people from different spheres of life. And as I said, you may literally have nothing in common with other Christians in your church. But we all come together as one body, united by one spirit, united in Christ. And then, for all the different denominations, for all the different beliefs among denominations, all of that falls to the wayside when we agree that we are united in Christ. And I, I was talking to a few people before I left, the difference between doctrine and dogma. And we can all, like everyone in this church can sit here and have a different doctrine. But we've all got this one doc, dogma that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God, but he is fully God. That we've got this, this do, um, dogma, this, this essential belief that unites us around the world with the body of Christ, different denominations. We're part of ACC. We have the Pentecostal spirit within us but we can connect with the catholic church we can connect with the greek orthodox church with the church of christ with the baptist church because we all believe that jesus is king that jesus is lord and that's what unites us is beautiful that god doesn't he doesn't hate um uh diversity right he's each person is created uniquely in the image of God. So that means that each person reflects God. But we're so different. But God celebrates diversity. Unity within diversity within unity is such a beautiful thing. And I know that I grew so much in my walk with God when I started going to other churches, to other young adult events with other churches, and I heard different perspectives, and I heard how the Catholics prayed, and I heard how the Baptists prayed, and I heard how the Pentecostals prayed, and it just shaped my faith, and it just brought me together as I built up relationships with people that saw things differently. I saw the diversity of the church. But I wasn't discouraged by it because I wasn't like, we are, we're not unified because there's so much diversity. We're unified within our diversity. There's this beautiful thing where we're united in Christ. We need to be united in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. That's our point of unity. And that's the word that God gave me for this church was that we need to unite in Christ Jesus. We've got to stop thinking about the things that separate us because we're called to unite in Christ Jesus. And the second point is a united church shows God's love. We all know the verse in John where Jesus gives us a new commandment. John 13, 34 to 35. It says, let me give you a new commandment. Love one another. In the same way that I have loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize you as my disciples when they see that the love that you have for each other. Guys, if we aren't united in Christ... If we aren't loving people within our own community with the love of Christ, how will the people see who God is? Because we will be known by the way that we love each other. 
So if we're not unified in the way that we love each other, how will the world know Christ's love represented through Christ's bride, the church? And when the church actually fulfills this commandment, when we love one another with the love of church, uh, sorry, with the love of Christ, we display the love of God to the world. And it's so important to be united in our vision, united in our love for one another. When Jesus explicitly says, the world will look to us to see what the love of Christ is. I want to I be a Christian that recognizes the diversity among our churches but loves the people in it with a radical Holy Spirit-inspired love that reflects the love of Christ. I want my best uh, evangelistic tool to be the way that I love the people in this church. But when we... Maybe we're really good at loving each other at Cornerstone, but when we, when we slander the, the doctrines or the beliefs of other churches, how is that loving them? We can agree to disagree... But we've got to be united in Christ to love each other. We've got to be united not just as cornerstone in love, but we've got to be united as the body of Christ in love. It's easy, it, sometimes it's easy to love the people in your own church because I've been three, here three years and I've got to know the hearts of people and I've got to know the passion and the vision of people and I love that and I see in their heart. But the, like we're literally in the Bible Belt of churches, okay? This, like, this industrial area, I don't know why it's zoned as an industrial area, should be zoned as a church area. There are churches all around us. Like, how are we loving our neighbors, literally our neighbors in Christ? How are we displaying the love for each other? Through the way that we, so how are we displaying the love of Christ by the way that we love each other? I want to be, I want to be a Christian that loves with the love of Christ. I want to be a church. I want Cornerstone to be a church that just radiates the love of Christ because we love each other and we are so united in the love of Christ. I'm going to ask the band to come. My, my final point. Um, today about unity is that a united church is a kingdom church. God chose his church to be the bride of Christ. God chose his church to be the plan for the world. God, a church divided isn't God's plan. He's calling us cornerstone as a church to be united in Christ. He's calling us to unite with the wider church, to work together as one body, to love one another with the love of Christ, and to bring about God's kingdom. When the individuals that make up the church set aside the peripheral issues that divide us, when we lay down our selfish agendas, and when we unite around our love for Christ, and our love for one another, the church fulfills its role as the body through which God will bring his kingdom. Church, I believe the enemy brings division for two reasons. When there's division in the church, the world looks in from the outside and says, where's the love of Christ that they claim? 
I can't see it. They're just fighting. They're divided. They don't love each other how they say that they should. I believe that the enemy brings division so that the world will see us divided and we want no part of us. The second reason I believe that he brings division in the church is so as we fight among each other, as we are divided among each other, we lose faith in God's plan to bring about his kingdom. We go, how will the church ever achieve its purpose? How will the church ever be the vehicle in which God brings his kingdom to this earth when we're just fighting with one another and we lose faith? And I've been in church and I'm a pastor's kid and I've seen the worst of the worst of church. I've seen the politics of church. I've seen the filthy things of church. I've seen the, the things that go behind. I've heard about the things that go behind closed doors. I've witnessed the things that go behind closed doors. And, and sometimes, church, I've even been a part of that. And part of me goes, the church, I, I, said, to, I said to my mate Grant yesterday, I said, if the Bible wasn't so explicitly clear that the church is Christ's bride, it wasn't so explicitly clear that God will bring his kingdom through his people united in the church, I would have lost faith in the church by now. It's easy to lose faith in the church when we're divided. But when we're united, cornerstone, when we're united in love for one another, we see God's kingdom break out. I literally cannot love people outside of the church. I cannot have compassion for the people that are under the injustices in the world today, if I didn't have the love and support of my church family, if I didn't know what true love looked like in the way that people have loved me in church over the years. I've seen the ugly side of church. I've seen the beautiful side of church. Sometimes we get a glimpse of everything the church can be, and that's when it comes together united and it cries out against injustice. It stands up for the oppressed. It does all the things that we read in our benediction. Let's be a church that lives our benediction. Let's be a church that is, that is loving so radically one another that people would flock to it and say that, why, like, how? I can't love the people that persecute me without the radical power of the Holy Spirit and work within me, united in Christ's body. I can't love the people who hate me without Christ's love. And I can't know Christ's love without the love of my brothers and sisters, the church. No man can be an island among himself. No man, no woman can be an island. We need community. God's plan was community. It was unity. And we saw how Israel and Judah, they fought and they split and they failed and they failed and they failed. Divided, they fell, they fell, they fell. Let's be united. Let's stand united as cornerstone, united in the love of Christ Jesus. Let's stand with the body of the church. Let's not mock those that have different beliefs to us. Let's love them. Let's say to the churches that have a different doctrine, the things that we don't agree with, let's say that we, we see the Christ in you, we see the good favor in you, we see your good intentions, and let's change people through love because 
the more that we get like caught up in the mud of the things that don't matter and the more that we lose sight of the core value of unity in Christ and our love for one another, the more we become divided. And God, I'm so excited for Cornerstone. I'm so excited for this next season because God has covered us in a blanket of unity. That God is calling us to unite together to show the world the love of Christ through the way that we love each other. We may have seen the enemy's plan for division in certain areas of this church. We may have seen the enemy's desire to create division so that the world would look at us as hypocrites and say they preach one thing, but they can't even get it together amongst themselves. The greater is the spirit of unity that is in Christ than any plan to divide by the enemy. I'm so encouraged. Guys, we are now, it's, 20, it's almost 2018. If the church was going to fall, if the church was going to fail, it would have failed by now. It's incredible how the church has stood the test of time for the people, for the cynical people that say the church wasn't going to last. The church wouldn't have lasted if it wasn't God's plan for this world. I want to be a part of a united church that is moving forward, that isn't looking to the former things, that is moving forward step by step in faith under anointed leadership in our pastor, our senior pastor Tyler, walking behind that anointed leadership as she follows the vision that God has given her for this church. I want to step out in faith into the new things. I don't care how scary it looks. I want to be united with God's plan for this church, with Christ's heart for this church, I want to be a bride that is worthy of Christ. Lord God, we just pray right now, Lord, that you begin to spread your unifying love through, through us, your people, Lord. God, we repent for the times that we have Lord, that we have been part of the problem. Lord, that we haven't had enough faith. We've looked to the former things, Lord, where we haven't trusted in your leadership, God. We pray that you unite us now, Lord. God, I want to be... Lord, that cornerstone... Be a member of your body, Lord, that isn't doing its own thing, but is working in unison with the call that you have on its life, Lord. That we are working together with the wider body of Christ to see this kingdom come. Your kingdom come to this world, uh, this world Lord, as it is in heaven. Let that be our prayer, Lord, that your kingdom come, that we would love each other the way that you have loved us. That we will be united with us this morning, God.
And church, what better way than uniting together, than sealing this prayer with an amen of communion? As we partake in the body of Christ, let us come together in unity and love for one another. Let us remember what Christ did for us. Remember the love that he showed for us so that we would see his plan for this world. I'm going to invite Leanne. She's going to lead us around the table. Let's be united in the love that Christ has for us and for this world. Thank you, Sam. That was awesome. Thank you, Lord. I was just praying this morning and um, this passage of scripture came to mind and it's basically Jesus having his last supper in the book of Matthew 26 with his disciples. And I just began to think about each of those disciples, in particular Judas. And I'm thinking, here is Judas, who is about to betray the one whom he says he loves um, to, the, to the Romans. And I began to think about him sitting there, and he knew that as he broke the bread. He blessed it, and then he broke it. And then he took the cup, you know, and he blessed it. And then he, he gave it to each one and all, including Judas. And I began to think about three things in particular. We can come here this morning around this table and feel like we have superiority. That we have, well, at least we're not like Judas. We didn't betray the one and only son of the living God, the Messiah, the promised one. But I began to think about that word betrayal and I began to think about things like how easy it is to, you know, break someone's trust. How easy it is to, when Jesus says for you to do something and you don't do it. How easy it is to hold an attitude in our heart that we're not like them over there or we don't believe this over there or we're not like the same. But even that breaks God's heart. Or we can come around this table this morning and we can feel inferior, that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy enough, that there's things that we've maybe have held in our hearts or things that we have, like Sam was saying, partaken of or been a part of and not felt very good about that and feel that we can't come around the table this morning. But the good thing about this table, it's not a table of superiority. It's not a table of inferiority. This is a table of equality, that each one of us can come around this table knowing that we are on an equal playing field of being sinners, saved by grace, through faith in what the blood of Jesus has done for us. None of us can come around this table and think we're better than anybody else. And none of us can come around this table and think they were less than anybody else. We can come around this table equal because of who he is and what he has done. Let us come. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love God and for those who want to love God more. So come, you have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have come for the first time. You, have tried, you who have tried to follow Jesus you who have failed in following Jesus, and you who have just decided to follow Jesus for the very first time. Come, let nothing keep you from love cease. Let nothing empty this table of its power. Leave judgment behind and receive mercy. 
leave indifference behind and recognize God's family. Leave now, if necessary, and be a forgiver. Then run back, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is God's will that those who desire Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit should encounter him here. So come. Thank you, Jesus. Church, we have come as we are. But by his grace, we are sent out not the same. For in this place, the spirit that anointed Christ has been poured out on us. He has exchanged a crown of beauty for our ashes and the oil of joy for our sorrow. A garment of praise for the spirit of despair. He has spoken over us a new name, Oaks of Integrity. And prophesied we will grow into a canopy of his beauty to bless and rebuild the city in his unfailing, nonviolent love. So go, broadcast good news for the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, prophesy freedom for captives, and let the blind see. Set free the oppressed, live jubilee, and forgive, blessing our enemies, because Christ has shut the book on vengeance. So go now in his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen.